unsolved, unbelievable, and unjust, a podcast where we dive into the most chilling of all cold cases and take a look at crimes with facts that are so crazy that they are, well, unbelievable. And lastly, we examine instances where the justice system has terribly failed us. I'm Ashley, your host, and thanks for tuning in. true crime lovers. I'm Ashley and welcome back to another episode of Unsolved, Unbelievable, and Unjust. Uh, So this week we are going to be doing part two of the Cleveland abductions episode, which we started last week. Um, But we really barely just scraped the surface last week. This week we're really going to dig into the horrific crimes committed by Ariel Castro. Um, And the girl's escape, and then his trial as well. Um, so we'll, it'll just be a two-parter, this one. All right, so last week we talked about how Ariel Castro was a horrible person even before his kidnappings, how he repeatedly um, and horribly beat his wife, Nelda, in front of all of their children. And then we discussed also how he used all of the victims' familiarity with him through them all knowing his daughters to lure them into his van and eventually to his house. Um, And we left off in the summer of 2004 when Ariel Castro had given the girls journals to draw and write about their stories or thoughts. And so that is where we are going to pick up. So in November of 2004... The grand jury indicted Fernando Collin on 28 charges of rape, kidnapping, and molestation. Um, that poor man, he all he did was fall in love with a girl who had been in an abusive relationship, try to provide her with a better life, and it ends up ruining his life as a result. So the prosecution's entire case was based solely on the statements of Arlene and Emily. Later that year in On December 15th, Nilda swore an affidavit accusing Ariel Castro of manipulating their daughters into lying about Fernando abusing them. Nilda outlined all the gifts that Ariel had given them and promised the girls. Um, Emily Castro was soon expelled from high school and ended up living with her aunt Sonia in the same house that Fernando Collin had moved in to awaiting trial. So do we really think she would have done that if... The accusations were real? Probably not, right? Gina and Amanda's disappearances were widely covered by the media, and the cases were now presumed to be connected. When their cases were covered by the news or other networks, Castro would force the girls to watch all of the coverage on the TV in their rooms. In the spring of 2005, he started allowing the girls the freedom to roam around their rooms without chains. However, he locked the doors and he even removed the inside doorknob. So there was absolutely no way for them to escape or sorry, to open them from the inside. And remember, he also had covered the inside of the windows with barbed wire. So there was really no way for these girls to get out of these rooms, even though their chains had been removed. 
So one week after the anniversary, the first anniversary of Gina's disappearance in early April of 2005, the FBI released a sketch of a man who had been seen near Wilbur Wright Middle School shortly after, or sorry, shortly before Gina went missing. And this sketch looked remarkably similar to Ariel Castro. But for some reason, they still did not follow up on the tip that Fernando Collin had given them. Like, it's just completely unbelievable. On April 21st, 2005, it was the second anniversary of Amanda's kidnapping. To, air quotes, celebrate, Castro served her and the other girls a birthday cake. And this would become a tradition that he would carry out throughout the rest of the girls' captivity. Amanda and Gina's families would throw vigils every year to commemorate their disappearances, and Castro would make the girls watch them on TV as well. In June of 2005, Arlene Castro told Nilda that she had made all of the allegations against Fernando up. However, after speaking with Castro on the phone, she stuck to her original story. Then in July 2005, Emily Castro became pregnant and moved to Indiana to live with her older sister, Angie. On August 29, 2005, Nilda got a restraining order against Castro after claiming he threatened to kill her and her daughters if they did not testify in the Fernando trial. A few days later, on September 4, 2005, Castro rounded up the girls and chained them in his van with only a bucket to use as a toilet. He then drove to Indiana to get Emily and bring her back to Cleveland to testify, then picked up his daughter Arlene, and they all spent the night uh, at Castro's home. The next morning, Nilda and her attorney appeared in court to apply for a restraining order against Castro. Castro and his lawyer were also present at the hearing. Nilda told the judge about the, all of the abuse that she had suffered and the death threats that the lawyer, uh, sorry, that her and her daughters had been receiving from Castro leading up to the Fernando Collin trial. The judge granted Nilda a temporary protection order, which prevented Castro from contacting Nilda or the children and required him to stay 500 feet away from them. Fernando's call, Fernando Collins' trial was scheduled for the same day. However, it was d- delayed again after Arlene failed to show up. Castro tracked her down, and that night, Emily and Arlene stayed at Castro's home again, despite the no-contact order. The next day, both Arlene and Emily testified to being molested by Fernando Colon on multiple occasions. They also denied ever seeing their mother abused by Ariel Castro or being offered money by him to testify. This just shows how manipulative um, Castro really is. Castro took the stand next. He denied bribing his daughters to bring the accusations against uh, Fernando Collin. He also denied ever hitting Nilda, only admitting to struggling with her one time in self-defense, which resulted in Nilda, quote, hitting her head on a door jam. Um, and this is the occasion where he actually hit her in the head with a metal pole, and she ended up in the hospital needing stitches. Next was Ariel Castro Jr., who told the judge that he did not think that the allegations were real and also told the judge all about the abuse he witnessed growing up. Uh, Thank goodness. I'm not thank goodness for the abuse, my gosh. Um, Thank goodness that he told the judge because the allegations are obviously not real. The last to testify was Nilda. She testified about all the lavish, lavish gifts that Castro had given Arlene and Emily leading up to the accusations. She even the told the judge, quote, I mean, it's obvious he's not guilty. Um, You go, Nilda. Finally, she told the judge 
about all the abuse she had suffered, even showing him the scar on her skull from when he beat her over the head with a metal pole. In closing statements, the defense attorney stated that Emily and Arlene had not wanted to testify and had done so out of fear for their father. He brought up the strange questions that Castro had asked his daughters when they got their period. He had asked, quote, is it your period or did someone put their finger in there? He said that Castro was obsessed with his daughter's sexualities. Um, this is actually horrifying. Like his poor daughters. I couldn't even imagine if that had happened to me. Like that is just disgusting. He then asked the judge to acquit Fernando Collin on all charges. At the end of the hearing, Judge Russo found Fernando Collin guilty of four counts of sexual imposition. He acquitted him on the other nine charges. He was later sentenced to three years of supervised community control and forced to register as a sex offender. So basically, Ariel Castro completely ruined his life just out of jealousy. In December 2005, Michelle and Gina learned that Luana Miller, Amanda's mom, had died of heart failure when the story was covered by the news. Amanda's aunt was featured on the news saying, quote, she died of a broken heart um, after Amanda's disappearance. Later that night, Castro unchained Michelle and Gina and let them walk around the second floor. They went into Amanda's room to offer their condolences. However, had Amanda had not had not heard the news report yet, and she was absolutely devastated to find out that her mother had passed away. In January 2006, Emily Castro gave birth. She was living in Indiana with her mother, boyfriend, and sister after the Fernando Cullen trial. A few weeks later, Amanda became pregnant with Castro's baby. During the pregnancy, Castro kept Amanda completely separated from the other girls. On July 5th, 2006, Castro brought his grandson, his eldest daughter, Angie's son, whom he was babysitting at the time, upstairs to meet his captors. Because, I mean, why not, right? That seems like a great idea. Grandpa of the year right there. Castro had warned the girls ahead of time to hide their chains so the young boy would not be scared. However, the little boy was obviously terrified by what he saw and started crying for his mom. He must have told his parents something suspicious when he got home because several weeks later, Angie, Emily, and Emily's husband showed up at Castro's home demanding to search the house. Prior to his family's arrival, however, Castro had moved all of the girls to the basement and chained them to the support pole. He put duct tape over their mouths and threatened to kill them if they made any noise while his family was over. So for some reason, they had told him that they were coming over ahead of time when they planned to search the house. Um, this just this seems like a horrible idea. So while his family was over, the girls could hear his family members demanding that Castro unlock the basement door. And they also heard Castro reply that he, they couldn't go down there because it was flooded. Unbelievable. They show up to search the house after the kid told them something was obviously really suspicious going on. And they just believed that obvious lie. For the next three weeks, the girls were all kept chained together in the basement. They exchanged stories of how they had been kidnapped and the abuse they had suffered over the years. Castro then moved the girls all back upstairs. He put Amanda in the white bedroom by herself and Gina and Michelle were put in the pink bedroom together. On September 21st, 2006, an anonymous tip led police to believe that Gina de, de Jesus's body was buried under a concrete garage floor. The police arrested two suspects and dug up the foundation of the garage. However, it was a false alarm. 
Many family members and friends went to the to Jesus' home to comfort them during this time, um, and that included Ariel Castro because he is a piece of shit and couldn't help himself. In December 2006, Michelle became pregnant again. Amanda was in her third trimester at this time. When Castro found out, he starved her for three weeks. When that did not make her abort, he kicked Michelle in the stomach. Gina would later report to investigators, quote, Michelle was pregnant most of the time. On Christmas Day 2006, Amanda went into labor and Castro brought her and Michelle, who Castro had ordered to deliver the baby, into the basement, where he had prepared a plastic kiddie pool for her to give birth in. Uh, the baby was not breathing after it was born, and Michelle, or sorry, Castro screamed at Michelle that it was would be her fault if the baby died. Michelle gave the baby compressions and mouth-to-mouth um, until she started breathing, and this is completely miraculous. Like, good, Michelle, good for you, because she had absolutely no training whatsoever, and to be under so much pressure where he's like, it'll be your fault if the baby dies. Like, good for you, Michelle. So Castro named the baby girl Jocelyn, and after Jocelyn's death, Castro removed Amanda's chains for good so that the baby would never see them. The baby moved into Amanda's bedroom with her so that she could take care of her, and Castro treated the girls better while the baby was present. Fast forward to 2008, and Ariel Castro believes that him, his prisoners, and his new daughter have formed some type of happy family. And when Michelle refused to play along with this happy family delusion, he punched her in the face and yelled at her, quote, what's wrong with you? You're supposed to be happy. Like, no, what's wrong with you, Ariel Castro, that you think that anyone could possibly be happy in this fucked up situation that you've created for them? Castro would later testify at his trial years later that there was harmony in his house during this time and until his victims escaped. Clearly, he was not very in touch with reality. So at this point, Jocelyn was now a, to a toddler, and Castro gave the girls aliases due to the constant media attention that Gina and Amanda's cases still received. Castro feared that Jocelyn would one day recognize the girls from the news. Michelle became Juju, and Gina became Chelsea, and Amanda was allowed to keep her name, which didn't make any fucking sense because Amanda's case was widely covered by the news, Michelle's wasn't, and Jocelyn would be most likely to recognize her own mom. But anyways, I digress. This is also around the time that Castro implemented this fucked up barter system that he used with the girls, where he would rape them and then throw money at them as if they were prostitutes and not prisoners. And then when they needed something from the store, he would make them pay for it out of the money that he had uh, given them. And that's literally like one of the most awful things I've ever heard. Like that is just pure psychological torture and only the cruelest of human beings could even come up with something like that. Fast forward a little further to when Jocelyn started speaking. Uh, one day Jocelyn found Michelle's chains and pulled on them and started asking questions. Castro finally, after six years, removed Michelle and Gina's chains. He occasionally allowed them to roam around the house while he carried around a revolver and watched them. Um, but the rest of the time they were locked up in their bedrooms um, which, remember, didn't have any inside doorknobs and were locked from the outside. Amanda and Jocelyn were in the larger white bedroom, and Michelle and Gina were in the pink bedroom. The girls were absolutely too terrified to even attempt to escape at this point due to all of the psychological torture that they had endured over the years. 
Castro's happy family fantasy continued. He would now have Gina cook dinner for their, air quotes, family and talk to Amanda about his day as if she was his wife. He even started taking Jocelyn to the park and out to church with him. And when people asked who Jocelyn was, Castro would tell them that she was either his granddaughter or his girlfriend's daughter. And he didn't even have a fucking girlfriend at this time. So I don't know how he told this to people. And they were just like, oh, yeah, sure. You're, that, yeah, that makes sense. But anyways, he once even brought Jocelyn on a trip with him to Ohio to visit his cousin. Um, this time saying that she was his grand, was a granddaughter. And Castro's cousin later stated that Jocelyn seemed like a completely normal little girl when she visited. On April 1st, 2010, Cleveland's mayor, Jack Frank Jackson, released a 900-page report outlining dozens of problems with the how the city's police department handles missing ca- persons cases. Ironically, several months later, in November 2010, the police were called to Castro's house multiple times by neighbors reporting suspicious things, and yet his victims were still not discovered. First, Michelle was spotted holding Jocelyn behind a half-boarded-up window in one of Castro's upstairs bedrooms. Anita Lugo, the neighbor, heard banging coming from next door and looked over and saw Michelle in the window and called the police. Michelle would later explain that she was attempting to escape that day. The police knocked on the door several times, uh, but when no one answered, they just left. A short while later, another neighbor, Juan Perez, reported to police that he had heard screams coming from Castro's basement. Quote, the kind of scream that made you uncomfortable. Police again came to the door to investigate, but left after no one answered. Then another neighbor reported seeing a naked woman wearing a dog collar in Castro's backyard. When they called the police, the police literally thought it was a prank call and did nothing. Not long after, several residents of a retirement home called the police to report seeing three naked women with a collar and leash on being abused in Castro's backyard. The police never showed up to even investigate this call. They literally reported three women being abused and the police did nothing. So, like, that's fucked up. And just completely unbelievable. Like, the police are at his house twice, and when he doesn't answer, they just assume everything is fine. And then they get two calls of people seeing women naked and wearing dog collars in the backyard, and they don't even look into them at all. Like, I'm sorry, what? Cleveland police, you really shit the bed on this one. In May 2011, Tito Jesus, Gina's cousin, was over at Castro's home after helping him move some appliances that he was giving to Castro. Castro asked Tito if they had found his cousin yet, and when Tito said no, they hadn't, Castro said, quote, I pray to God that they find her. Just what an asshole. Gina's parents held an annual vigil on the anniversary of her disappearance. On either the 7th or 8th anniversary of her disappearance, Castro not only attended the vigil, he also handed out flyers and even led the chant, We Want Gina. That's just disgusting. On April 25th, 2012, Nilda died from brain cancer. Like the monster he is, Castro showed up at her funeral and proceeded to drink and make jokes. I don't even know what to say about that. There's literally nothing that you can. On July 8th, 2012, the Cuyahoga County Sheriff Department dug up the vacant lot of West 13th and Wade Avenue, They did this after receiving a letter from Robert Waldorf 
at the end of June, wherein he claimed that he and another man murdered Amanda Berry and buried her remains there. The dig lasted for several days. Backhoes and cadaver dogs were brought in and a crowd started to form around the dig site. Daniel Marty, Castro's neighbor, reported seeing him at the site assisting police officers with, with putting up the yellow crime scene ribbon. Marty claims Castro told him, quote, they're not going to find Amanda there. The search was called off after no remains were found, obviously. And in January 2013, Robert Waldorf was sentenced to four additional years after admitting that he made the whole thing up just to get out of prison for a few days. So he is also a piece of shit. It was also during the summer of 2012 that Gina and Michelle's mattress, which Castro had originally obtained from an alley, became infested with bedbugs. The girls would continue to have to sleep on this mattress until they were rescued. On November 6, 2012, Ariel Castro was fired from his job as a school bus driver. Then in late November, he was fired from the Latin music band that he played with, Grupo Cannon. And now that he was home all day, his victims suffered worse abuse than ever. He also started taking Jocelyn out in public with him more often during this time. And one of Castro's neighbors, Moses Cintron, sorry if I pronounced that wrong, reported seeing Castro with Jocelyn at least twice a week during this time. On Christmas 2012, Jocelyn turned six and Castro brought a, bought a cake to celebrate. He let everyone join the celebrations except Michelle, who he pushed down the stairs and locked in the basement. When Michelle fell, she landed on her stomach. Uh, she was three months pregnant at this time. Castro then came down and kicked her in the stomach repeatedly. Four days later, Michelle aborted the baby, and when she did, Castro slapped her across the face and screamed at her, it's your fault, you aborted my baby. <sighs> I just hate him so much. Like, that is so fucked up. No, you killed your baby. You did that. And how dare you blame her for that? Anyways. In February 2013, Ariel was at Tito DeJesus's house to go over music for Tito's band, and Castro again asked if they had found Gina yet, and when Tito said no, Castro said again, he prayed to God that they would find her. At the end of February, Castro visited his daughter Angie. When he was there, he showed Angie a picture of Jocelyn, telling her that it was his girlfriend's daughter. Angie said that Jocelyn, Jocelyn had an uncanny resemblance to her sister Emily. In April 2003, Castro again attended the, the vigils held by Gina and Amanda's parents to commemorate the 9th and 10th anniversaries of their abductions. He also got them a birthday cake to celebrate. In early May 2013, Castro had a friend named Ricky Sanchez over to purchase a guitar he had posted for sale on Facebook. He allowed him inside, which is something Castro rarely did, and while he was there, Jocelyn walked into the living room. Castro introduced her as his granddaughter, um, and Sanchez thought this was strange because he knew all of Castro's family members and had never seen or heard of her before, but evidently he did not think it was strange enough to tell anyone uh, or do anything. A few days later, on Monday, May 6, 2013, around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Castro went to his mother's house for dinner, leaving Amanda's bedroom door unlocked. 
after checking to make sure that his car was gone, Amanda went downstairs and discovered that miraculously the front door had also been left unlocked. However, the screen door in front was chained shut from the outside. So Amanda started banging on the glass to get the attention of Castro's neighbor that she could see sitting on her porch across the street. Aurora Marty, the neighbor that spotted Amanda, heard Amanda scream, help me, help me, my name is Amanda Berry, and I've been captured for 10 years. Aurora didn't even believe her at first. She said, Amanda Berry is dead. Everyone knows that. And Amanda yelled back in reply, no, I've been kidnapped in this house for 10 years by Aero Castro. Aurora, her housemate, Angelo Cordero, and their neighbor, Charles Ramsey, who had heard the commotion and came over to help, went to work breaking down the door so that Amanda could escape. Cordero and Ramsey kicked the bottom panel of the door until it broke and Amanda and Jocelyn crawled out. Amanda and Jocelyn ran across the street to use a neighbor's phone to call 911. And at 5.54 p.m., police officers Anthony Espada, Barbara Johnson, and Michael Tracy arrived at the scene. When the police arrived, Amanda told them that Michelle Knight and Gina Jesus were still inside the house. The officers crawled through the kicked out door panel and Michelle heard a ruckus from downstairs and thought that someone might be breaking into the house. Uh, So she and Gina hid behind a dresser. The girls heard a female voice yell police and the sound of a walkie talkie. So Michelle then went out to investigate. And when Michelle saw Officer Espada, she was so happy that she jumped into his arms. The officers barely recognized Gina from her missing persons poster as she was so emaciated and pale and had very short hair now. An APB was put out on Castro shortly after the police arrived at 2207 Seymour Drive. His car was quickly spotted at McDonald's and Ariel and his younger brother O'Neill, who was with him at the time, were arrested. O'Neill told the officers that Pedro was still at their mother's house and then officers picked him up and arrested him too. The three brothers were all being taken to booking, but at this point they had absolutely no idea what for. Once being, sorry, once outside the house, the girls all converged in the ambulance that Amanda and Jocelyn had been waiting in and tearfully told the police that they had been kidnapped 10 years prior. And then they immediately began pouring out details of all the abuses that they had suffered over the past decade. Officers accompanied the girls to Metro Health Hospital where they were examined by doctors and later reunited with their families. Dr. Gerald Maloney was the emergency doctor on duty and the first doctor to examine the girls since they had been taken or in Jocelyn's case ever. Michelle was in by far the worse condition physically than the other girls. She weighed just 80 pounds at the time of their rescue and was suffering from malnutrition. Dr. Maloney recalled, quote, Michelle had several bruises and appeared somewhat emaciated. Michelle's jaw was severely damaged after being punched repeatedly by Castro over the last 10 years. She also had a life-threatening bacterial infection from being forced to eat rotten food. FBI agent Andrew Burke of the Violent Crimes Task Force began coordinating the investigation immediately. He organized a multi-agency task force, which contained the FBI, the Cuyahoga County Sheriff's Office, and Cleveland Police Department. Agent Burke ordered search warrants of Castro's home, vehicle, telephones, and DNA. He also ordered the Cleveland Sex Crimes and Child Abuse Unit to start the process of interviewing and examining the four victims. 
At 7.02 p.m., the Cleveland Plains dealer website broke the news of the girl's escape, and with hours of the story breaking, it was making headlines worldwide. That night, Gina had an emotional reunion with her parents and Amanda with her sister. Gina had forgotten how to speak Spanish after all of those years uh, held prisoner and had to ask her family to speak to her in English only. And that is just like so incredibly sad. Amanda later called her father, who was terminally ill with pulmonary disease, to tell him that she was alive. Her father later said that it was the happiest day of his life. And Michelle's mother called the hospital trying to speak with her, but Michelle refused to take her calls. That night, Castro was walked by his brother O'Neill's cell at one point and told him, you're never going to see me again. I love you, bro. So I guess he knows he's fucked at this point, even though he still hasn't been told what charges he's been arrested under. Pedro and O'Neill still have no idea at this point either what's going on. And that must be like so scary for them. Like, can you imagine just being arrested and you have no idea why? Gina and Amanda were discharged from the hospital the next day. Um, but due to the already insane media attention that the case was receiving, uh, since the story of the news, story of the girl's escape broke, they were taken to a hotel rather than taken to their houses, and they were given 24-hour security to protect them from the media. However, Michelle remained in the hospital in serious condition. So a lot happened on May 7th, 2013. First, News broke of the neighbors who had reported seeing naked girls on leashes in Castro's backyard, had heard screams coming from the house, and had seen girls um, banging on the attic window uh, years earlier to the police. However, Cleveland City Hall released a statement later that day denying all of the allegations of sightings of suspicious activity at Castro's house and stated, quote, media reports of multiple calls to the Cleveland police report reporting suspicious activity and the mistreatment of women at 2207 Seymour are false. Um, so that's just complete bullshit. Anyways, Barbara Knight told Savannah Guthrie of NBC that she filed a missing persons report after Michelle had gone missing, but had never heard back from the police whatsoever. Um, so the P Cleveland police are really not looking too good right now. Also on May 7th, Detective Laura Parker and Cynthia Adkins were the ones to conduct preliminary interviews on the victims. Uh, it was Amanda first to be interviewed, then Gina, and finally Michelle, each recounting how Ariel had tricked them into his van and lured them to his home at 22 more Seymour Avenue seven year, or so many years earlier. They also detailed the abuse in chronological order so that the prosecutors could break it down into separate charges. And Michelle was questioned in detail about Castro, how Castro had forced her to miscarry five times. Ariel Castro also had his first interview on May 7th. The interview was conducted by Deputy Sheriff David Jacobs of the Cuyahoga, Cuyahoga, sorry, that's a really hard word to say, Cuyahoga County Sheriff's Office. Jacobs later reported that Castro was surprisingly forthcoming with information and answered all questions that were asked of him, including those that were incriminating. Oops, sorry, I just hit the mic there. Um, however, he said that him and Michelle had had consensual sex since her abduction in 2002 and that he only knew of one pregnancy. He claimed that he had used a tea diet and jumping jacks to make her miscarry, so that is just absolutely not true or believable at all fucking teas and jumping jacks i'm pretty sure tea 
um, doesn't make anyone miscarry. Castro even referred to himself as a sexual predator, predator during the interview. When asked what he defined as a sexual predator, Castro replied, quote, somebody who repeatedly repeats offenses. So he has some insight into what he's done clearly, but he's also lying about and covering up other things. Like, like there's no way that him and Michelle had consensual sex. That's absolutely f- fucking bullshit. He told, he also told investigators that his brother's had nothing to do with his crime. So that's like the one nice thing that he's done this entire fucking story. Finally, he told the sheriff that he wanted to commit suicide. So he was kept on suicide watch that night. At the end of the day on May 7th, the FBI's evidence recovery response team searched Castro's home and hundreds of pieces of evidence were removed. Agents discovered a sophisticated alarm system that Castro had installed in his home, which would activate if either the front or back door were opened. They also discovered heavy heavy curtains, which Castro had hung to hide the additional bedrooms that the girls were imprisoned in and to block off the view beyond the kitchen. There was also a porch swing at the bottom of the staircase to the second floor. So he had essentially put like a barricade in at the bottom of the staircase. The investigators also discovered thousands of dollars in small bills which Castro had used in the fucked up barter system that I mentioned earlier where he would throw money at the girls after raping them as if they were prostitutes and then make them pay for their basic needs and necessities. Um, Most disturbing of all though investigators found 99 feet and three inches of chains which he had used to restrain the girls over the year and that is just an absolutely unbelievable insane amount of chains his poor victims. Castro's brother, mom, and ex-girlfriend were all interviewed and denied having any idea that the girls were in prison there, despite all being at his house during the time that they were held there. On May 8th, Ariel Castro was interviewed again and was again very forthcoming with information and answered all questions. He even admitted to forcing the girls to play Russian roulette. When Deputy Sheriff Jacobs asked Castro, or sorry, gave Castro the opportunity to show remorse for what he had done and apologize to the girls um, on record, because obviously all interviews are video and audio recorded, he literally did not respond. So what a piece of shit. At the end, he signed a three-page statement of what he had admitted to over the last two days of interviews. Later that day, Amanda Berry was finally returned home to her sister, Beth Serrano's home. A few hundred friends and neighbors had gathered outside to welcome Amanda back. And Beth addressed the media outside her home after and asked the media to respect the family's privacy at this time. Three hours later, Gina also went home for the first time in nine years. She was also greeted by hundreds of friends and neighbors. She was, in fact, too traumatized to sleep in her bedroom after going home because it reminded her of where she had been in prison and she had since been sleeping in the living room. Barbara Knight also visited Michelle on May 8th. Finally, Cleveland's chief prosecutor, Victor Perez, held a press conference announcing that he had signed criminal charges against Castro for four counts of kidnapping and three counts of rape. No charges had been laid against O'Neill or Pedro. Castro would be arraigned the next day in Cleveland's municipal court. He also announced that he expected Castro would be indicted on these seven charges and likely additional ones. On May 9th, at Ariel Castro's arraignment, Kiwahoga County Assistant Prosecutor Brian Murphy told Justice Lauren, Lauren, sorry, Moore, 
sorry, Lauren Moore, that quote, these charges against Mr. Castro are based on premeditated, deliberate, and depraved decisions to snatch three young ladies from Cleveland's West Side streets to be used in whatever self-gratifying, self-serving way he saw fit. He also told the judge how the girls had suffered from repeated beatings, sexual abuse, and had been bound and restrained. When Castro's bail was set at $8 million, he was let out of the courtroom and showed no reaction whatsoever. He was taken back to jail and remained on suicide watch, where he would be checked every 10 minutes. Timothy McGinty, Cuyahoga County prosecutor who, who had been assigned to the case, stated to the media outside the court that, quote, this child kidnapper operated a torture chamber and private prison in the heart of our city. The horrific brutality and torture of what the victims endured for a decade is beyond comprehension. And I couldn't have said this better myself. It truly is like beyond comprehension. It's unbelievable that someone could even think of, let alone actually commit such horrible crimes against someone or multiple victims. Michelle, Amanda, and Gina were ordered not to speak to each other before the trial so as not to compromise the case against Ariel Castro. Michelle was still in the hospital recovering from facial reconstruction surgery to fix all the damage from her jaw that Ariel had caused from repeatedly punching her in the face. The community rallied to honor Michelle that night, who had never had a vigil held for her while she was missing. The community activist Judy Martin stated, We want her to know that we care about her and are thinking about her. If we had known, we would have been there to help her too. And that is really like so sweet, especially after Michelle was forced to watch all of the news coverage uh, of the vigils held by Amanda and Gina and having been taunted by Castro, who said things like, oh, at least people are looking for her. Like, I, thank goodness that, you know, somebody had it in their heart to do things like that for Michelle. On May 10th, Michelle was finally released from the hospital and Cleveland, the Cleveland Courage Fund was set up as so many people had been sending money to the police station that they needed um, a fund to actively manage that. On May 11th, Pedro and O'Neill Castro were interviewed by CNN. When asked how they felt about their brother after finding out what they did, Reneal, sorry, O'Neill replied, quote, a monster. I hope he rots in that jail. I want him to suffer to the last extent. Like, me fucking too, O'Neill. Me too, buddy. The same day, Emily Castro was interviewed at Rockville Correctional Facility, where she was serving a sentence for first-degree murder after slashing her baby's throat. She said she felt betrayed that her father had used her and her, her sister's familiarity with the victims to lure them into his home. On May 15th, Castro met with his attorneys for the first time. He insisted on being naked for this entire two-hour meeting, which is just like, what a fucking weirdo. That's disgusting. Since he had already confessed to the police, his attorney's job was really going to be to try to prevent him from getting the death penalty for the charges he faced for forcing um, Michelle's miscarriages. The next day, one of Castro's lawyers told the media, quote, the initial betrayal by the media has been one of a monster. And that's not the impression I got when I talked to him for three hours. I'm sorry, what? Like, first of all, can you not tell this guy's fucking crazy? He sat through this entire meeting naked. He already confessed to everything he did. And you definitely know what he's confessed to being that you're his lawyer. So how the fuck could you ever say that? Anyways, on June 7, 2013, the Kiwahoga County Grand Jury returned a 329 count indictment against Ariel Castro. 
However, the indictment only covered uh, the period from Michelle's kidnapping to August of 2002, or sorry, Michelle's kidnapping in August of 2002 to February of 2007. And prosecutors promised that there would be more charges to come um, to cover the additional time that the girls were there. The initial charges included two counts of aggravated murder, 177 counts of kidnapping, 139 counts of rape, seven counts of gross sexual imposition, three counts of felonious assault, and one count of the possession of criminal tools. On June 12, Castro was arraigned at the Cuyahoga Common Police Court. Defense counsel told Judge Calabrese that Castro would be pleading not guilty to every single charge, which doesn't make any fucking sense considering he already confessed to everything. Like, why force everyone to go through this criminal process? Castro kept his eyes closed during the entire hearing like a pussy and then was ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation to see if he was fit to stand trial, and it was determined that he was. On July 2nd, Amanda, Gina, and Michelle met for the first time since their escape at the Jones Day Law Firm, who had been hired to represent the victims. Um, They met there to record a short video to thank all the donors to the Cleveland Courage Fund, which had now reached $1 million. So that is really amazing that there's so many generous people out there. The video was later posted on YouTube on July 9th. On July 12th, the Cuyahoga County Grand Jury handed handed down a 977-count indictment, which covered the entire period from August 2002 when Michelle was kidnapped to May 2013 when the girls uh, finally escaped. Tim McGinty announced the prosecutor's office would be meeting again the following week to decide whether they were going to pursue the death penalty for the charges, again, for the miscarriages. The 977-count indictment included 512 counts of kidnapping, 466 counts of rape, 7 counts of gross sexual imposition, 6 counts of felonious assault, 3 counts of child endangerment, one count of possession of criminal tools, and two counts of aggravated murder. When Castro was arraigned on the new indictment, he again pled not guilty to every single charge. On July 18th, Castro signed a plea deal, which would uh, forego the death penalty for a guilty confession. According to the plea deal, he would go to prison for the rest of his life and would have no chance of parole, plus 1,000 years. So this is the maximum amount of time that the state can sentence someone in Ohio. Um, And he pled guilty to 937 out of the 977 count indictment. On July 31st, Prosecutor Tim McGinty submitted a sentencing memorandum to Judge Russo, which outlined for the first time how Castro was able to lure the vic- his victims into his van uh, because the victims were friends of his daughters. The memorandum also detailed how Castro had used chains and other physical restraints to control his victims' use movements for years. It also detailed the her- horrible conditions he subjected them to, such as the plastic toilets, which he forced them to use and emptied very infrequently. And he had also manipulated the heat in the house to torture them. He would make it stifling in the summer and freezing in the winter. And McGinty states that, quote, through a program of prolonged physical, sexual, and psychological violence, the defendant, Castro, was able to keep the victims in a state of powerlessness. 
Finally, the memorandum revealed the existence of the girls' diaries, which detailed their abuse and helped the prosecutors compile the 977 charges that were against Ariel Castro. On August 21st, 2013, Ariel Castro's sentencing hearing took place. The Crown prosecutor still called witnesses, even though it was just a sentencing hearing, and the sentence had already been determined according to the plea deal because he believed that the public needed to know what Castro had done over the last 10 years. Detective Andrew Harrison Chuck was the first to testify, and he was from the Cleveland um, Police Department. He testified that, quote, all victims said that they were repeatedly sexually assaulted by Aero Castro, either vaginally, orally, or anally. They all described a pattern of being repeatedly sexually, physically, and emotionally assaulted by Ariel Castro during the entire time that they were held captive. Harrison Chuck had been the one to conduct the initial interviews while the victims had been in the hospital. He also outlined how Castro had kept them prisoner, restraining them with chains, and depriving them of food and bathroom facilities. Dr. Gregory Sathoff, who works with the FBI's behavioral analysis unit, testified when asked about how Castro had concealed his crimes from his friends and family that quote this is really the most significant part of the case that someone would be able to month after month year after year devise ways to conceal the situation from friends family and neighbors for a time he maintained a relationship with a girlfriend who was completely unaware that he had had these women in the house i couldn't agree more it's completely unbelievable how he managed to conceal this for so long especially considering how many times the police were at his fucking house Um, how many other times people called about his house and the police didn't go there and also how many friends and family members he had over there and fucking sleep over there during the time that prisoners were there it's just truly completely unbelievable michelle addressed the court at the sentencing hearing sharing what her 11-year captivity had been like like that's incredible that she would even like want to be in the same room with him after let alone testify like that's so brave She looked directly at Ariel Castro and said, you took 11 years of my life away and I have got that back. I spent 11 years in hell and now your hell is just beginning. I will overcome all this that happened, but you will face hell for an eternity. And what a boss, like you go, Michelle. In the judge's closing statements, he said, quote, this man deserves as many years and as much punishment as this this court can possibly give him. And then he handed down the maximum sentence of life with no chance of parole plus 1,000 years. So thank God. Before sentencing, Judge Russo gave Castro a chance to address the court. He then delivered a 17-minute long monologue where he claimed that he was a victim too and he had suffered sexual abuse as a child. Um, I'm sorry, but that doesn't give you any fucking right to do what you did, no matter what happened to you. He blamed his behavior on this abuse and said that he was not a monster he was just sick he also placed blame on his addiction to pornography and masturbation he stated your honor like i said before i am not a violent person i simply kept them there with without able to leave like good fucking grammar buddy he blamed amanda amanda gina and michelle and even nilda for the abuse that they had suffered so he's clearly taking zero accountability for his actions here which is just completely fucked up considering he admitted to everything arguably most shocking of all in castro's speech was when he stated quote practically all of it was consensual and quote there were times when they would even ask me for sex many times and i learned that these girls are not virgins from their testimony to me and they had multiple partners before me all three of them 
as if them not being virgins made what he did any less terrible. Like, what the fuck? He then claimed to have seen videos and pictures in the media where the girls looked happy and were acting normal and claimed that this was proof that they had not been tortured. Fuck you, dude. So just because they have managed to look happy and maybe even be happy, you're saying that, oh, yeah, they're very fine. I did nothing wrong here. Like, go fuck yourself. He ended off by saying, I am true, quote, I am truly sorry to the DeJesus family, Michelle and Amanda. You guys know all the harmony that went on in the house. I asked God to forgive me and I apologize to my family also for putting them through all this. He is seriously delusional if he thinks that he is not a violent person after all that he literally confessed to. Unbelievable. Castro kept a journal while he was in prison where he frantically complained about the conditions of the prison and how dirty his cell was, which is just ironic given the horrible conditions that he forced um, the girls to live in for 10 years, including all of the disgusting plastic toilets that he forced them to use. On September 3rd, Ariel Castro stripped naked and hung himself in his cell. He couldn't take the prison conditions, which were far better than what he kept his victims in for over a decade. And he took the coward's way out. Alrighty, guys. So that was a really heavy episode um, of Unsolved, Unbelievable, and Unjust. I hope you guys liked what you heard. Um, Next week, we're going to be covering the first Unjust episode, which I am really excited about. If you guys liked what you heard today, please like, subscribe, rate, review, all of that great stuff. And I can't wait to see you next time. Thanks for tuning in, fellow true crime lovers.